Thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. Good evening, and we're going to be talking about the temple, the temple of, uh, specifically also the temple of Jerusalem. Uh, it might seem uh, kind of a boring topic to talk about the temple. After all, uh, what is there to discuss? It's a building. It's actually much more than a building. In fact, the book of Revelation is utterly incomprehensible without the temple makes no sense. So we need to, again, train our minds to think about the temple, what it means, what it represents. And in the process, we're going to learn a lot more about the church and about the Mass. Uh, there are many things we do in the liturgy that most people don't understand or don't know why we do them, or why they're done when they're being done. And we don't know their origin, their, 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 their symbolism and what they mean. And many, if not most of what we do during Mass, go, go back to the temple, to the temple of Jerusalem, to the liturgies of the temple. We need to realize that the temple, the architecture of the temple was handed down by God. Not only that, the architecture of the, of the tabernacle and of the first sacred dwelling place that God had in the desert was also handed down by God. The description of the glorious temple in Ezekiel that we saw last time was again handed down by God. And the second part of the book of Revelation deal with the new Jerusalem and there again the architecture is handed down by God. So it seems that God has a very keen interest in the subject. And most of us, well, number one, we don't know why. And number two, we don't, we don't know what it means. So what I'm going to do tonight is take a first brush at that subject, and hopefully next week we'll deepen it further. And then we're going to spend some time just understanding the liturgy of the Temple of Jerusalem. What did they do in the Temple of Jerusalem? Anybody has any idea? Well, what does that mean to offer a Holocaust in the Temple of Jerusalem? How was that done? Specifically. And is that important? How many of us think of the Holocaust offering of the Temple in Jerusalem as a liturgy? It's a whole ceremony. As something where People had to attend in specific ways where things done in, were done in a very specific manner. And how many of us think that the Mass that we participate in has much to do with what they were doing at the Temple? Okay? Let me quote to you from this little book written by uh, Cardinal Jean Danielou. It's called The Sign of the Temple. Very nice little book. This one, this is the French version. Uh, you may want to get the English one. It's called The Sign of the Temple. Um, so I'm going to be doing some uh, translation on the fly, so bear with me. The temple is, with the covenant, one of the essential realities of Scripture. One of the signs through which we can read it. The temple is part of a 
liturgical ensemble that includes the sacrifices, the liturgical prayer, the feasts. But it doesn't only it doesn't hold a, a place of importance in the Old Testament only. It appears often in the Gospels. Jesus was attracted to the temple when he was a boy. We may remind ourselves that from the origins, from the beginning, the presentation of the temple, then during his public life, his teachings at the temple, at the occasion of the great feast of tabernacle dedication and the Passover. There is more. There is a mysterious link between Jesus and the temple. It is at the pinnacle of the temple that Satan transported Jesus to tempt him. The affirmation for which he would be condemned is, was that he said, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. This points to the mystery of the presence of God in the humanity of Christ and of his presence that succeeded that of the temple of Jerusalem. Finally, when Jesus died on the cross, one of the three signs that attest of the new order was that the veil of the temple was, was torn. The temple is desolate because the new temple is built. When you gather all the events that surround the temple, you start to see that it really plays a major role. But because our focus has been, especially in the century, on the person of Jesus, on the personal relationship I have with him, on a, relation, on a, on a religion or a way of living our faith that has separated spirit from body, the body is not important, all that matters is the spirit, the temple has lost its importance. Likewise, the architecture of our churches have lost their importance. And we need to recover that. We need to recover that. So what I want to do today is start by introducing this notion of a temple. What is a temple? Okay, let's start right there. What was the first temple that God built? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. Now, typically, our approach to that text is sort of pseudo-scientific. We hear those words and we try to map them to the Big Bang and the realities it presents. Now don't get me wrong, I think the Big Bang is a very powerful and meaningful scientific uh, explanation of how the cosmos came to be. I'm not disparaging that. But was that the intent of those words when they were penned down? In a literal historical sense, was that what people had in mind, the physical realization of the universe? In the temple of Jerusalem, you had the holy, which was the... So you, you, you have, on the outer edge, you have what the Jews would refer to the mountain of God, which we know as the court of the Gentiles. That court was available to all. Anyone could enter this court. That's where the money changes were. This is where the cattle and the beasts and the doves for sacrifice were. And then within that court, there was a... Um, an esplanade, sort of a, a, um, an elevation, and that elevation was walled with a five feet high wall, and within that elevation was the court of the woman, not so-called because only women could go there, but so-called because women could not go past that. And then, and then past that court, you would go to the Nicanor gate, and through the Nicanor gate you would enter the court of the Jews, or the court of the Israelites, which really was separated by, uh, by only one, one edge from the court of the priest. That court of the priest had in it the sacrifice of the altar and the laver standing next to it, and then you would then proceed into the holy which was a building, seven story high. A laver is a basin in which the priest actually washed. And we'll, we'll, we'll go through that extensively because this laver reappears in the book of Revelation. All right. 
So we'll go through this. And when you enter into the holy, when you enter into the holy, you had the altar of incense in which the priest would offer incense. This is the altar where Gabriel appeared to Zechariah. Right? To the left of it, that is north, there was a candlestick or candelabrum. Now that candelabrum was six feet high, made out of pure gold, weighed over 100 pounds. It had seven branches, the middle one pointing eastward towards the Holy of Holies. And it was from that middle one that all the other branches took its light. All right? Now, the Holy was pretty much dimmed. All right? It wasn't a place of great light. So you had that candelabrum, which was always lit. And since the temple was oriented west to east, meaning that the Holy of Holies was in the east, right? The candelabrum stood left of the, the altar of incense facing the Holy of Holies. So if, if the tabernacle right now was facing east, the altar of incense would be, is represented by the altar right here. And to its left was the candelabrum. Okay? I'm going to read to you now. Keep, keep that candelabrum in mind for a minute here. I'm going to read to you two different passages from the Gospels. Let's first turn to John chapter 1. The amazing thing about the Gospel of St. John is that one who is completely ignorant in Scripture is able to read it just the same as one who's really versed in Scripture. But definitely they will not derive the same meaning. Here's what he says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Notice how he hones right away on light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then what does he say? What does he add? He adds one thing. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Of which light he's thinking, and what darkness is he talking about? It's the temple. It's that candelabrum shining in the darkness. Because to the Jewish mind, if you read the Talmud, you will see that to them, that candelabrum represented the Messiah. Alright? It stood for the Messiah. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. The temple is omnipresent. This is liturgical speech. So St. John, in his usual customary genius, combines the reading from Genesis with the temple to speak about Christ. Because both the universe and the temple are what? Signs of Christ. Alright? See how if you don't have the temple in front of you, you miss the point? Why does he insert immediately that speech about light? Now, let me show you another passage in scripture where the same happens. I'm going to read to you in, in a way that is translated slightly from what you would find in your, in your, in your, um, in your Bible. This is a passage that you're very familiar with. This is Simeon. Jesus is presented at the temple. Remember? The presentation to the temple. Simeon sees Jesus. And here is a more literal translation, if you will. It's a poem. He, he speaks in poetry. Now thou dost dismiss thy servant, O Lord, according to thy word in peace. Because my eyes have seen the, thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to the revelation of the Gentiles, 
and the glory of thy people Israel. How many verses in that little poem? Seven. Okay, here's a man seeped in the liturgy of the temple, in the holy, in its structure, who sees what John saw. The light has come. The light shines in the darkness. Right? Those are examples that show us how men who deeply love the Lord revered his temple and understood what the temple was made of. Put differently, you can't love Christ in truth if you don't have a deep love for the way the church should be. And all the minute details of the church should be near and dear to your heart. Because they are all reflection of the beauty and of the glory of the Lord. Okay? Let me go back to Genesis then. What is then the account of Genesis? It is the first rendition of that temple that God built. Now why do I call the universe a temple? What is a temple? Anyone can wager a definition? Very simple definition of what a temple is. Place of worship, church, yes, the house of God. It's the place where God dwells. That's a temple. And yeah, we worship in the temple because God is there. That's why we worship there. Right? So across all cultures, a temple represents the place where the divinity dwells. What is the universe? Is God is in the universe? So what is the universe? A temple. Right? The whole universe is a temple. Made for what? What's its purpose? The glory of God. It gives God glory. And it is a place where we worship God. So therefore the teaching of the Catholic Church that man can come to the knowledge of God through reason one way is by observing nature because nature is a temple that God has created for us to come to know him now that does not mean that using our reason we can come to know that God is three in one that cannot that cannot be known to us other than through revelation but we can know that there is a deity that created this place by observing nature. Because it is a temple. Now, let's move further along. It translates in the following way. In Genesis, you have a symbol, a, a, a representation of the coming of Christ, of his incarnation. Right there in the first verse, you have the coming of Christ told to us in veiled ways. And there is a separation between the light and the darkness. Right. Saint, Saint Augustine states that this initial separation was between the good and bad angels because he says, how can God separate the night from the day when there, are, there is yet no sun to speak of? So to him, he sees it as a mystical separation, more so than a real separation. Or at least, it hides that dimension. From our perspective, what this, well, my focus was much, not so much on Genesis as it was on St. John, who actually takes that same passage, rewrites it differently, but ties it in with the temple. And the key to both of them is the candelabrum and its meaning in the temple, without which the two cannot completely be tied. Okay? Incidentally, I told you that the candelabrum stood north of the altar of incense. The altar behind me represents the altar of incense. The tabernacle is the holy of holy. Right? The, ta the, the candelabrum stood north, meaning to the left. What do we have to the left? Have you ever wondered why the priest reads the gospel here, whereas the other reading are done on the other side? And why does he preach from this side, not the other side? This is the place where the, preach, the, the priest will read the gospel, the light of the world, and he will announce the truth from here. Because this is where the candelabrum stood. We don't make up that stuff. We did not create this thing. This not, these are not fabrications of the Middle Ages. Those come to us straight through from the temple. 
And by the way, this is why the, the seat of the bishop is on the left-hand side, because again, the candelabrum represents the bishop. Okay? How do we know that? How do we... Why is that important? Turn to Revelation chapter 1. You will see how important this is. In the book of, uh, of Revelation chapter 1, uh, we read the following. Verse 12, chapter 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now there's a description of him, which I'm going to skip right now. The seven stars, verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay? So every lampstand represents the church. Why does a lampstand represent the church? Because the lampstand represents Christ, the lampstand represents the bishop, and the lampstand represents the truth that the church must pronounce. And in each of the letters, what is Christ telling the churches? If you do not this, I will remove what? The lampstand. I will remove the lampstand. We're going to go through those when we hit Revelation. But right now, just to let you know how important this lampstand is. I'm removing what? I'm removing your bishop. And incidentally, who happens to be the bishop? St. John. Those were all churches in his diocese. Okay? That's why the bishop's seat is on the left, not on the right. We don't make that stuff. It's part of the way God wanted the temple to be structured. That's why I tell you that I personally shudder when I hear people making architectural plans for the church and building churches when they have absolutely no idea how the temple was made because basically what they're telling God is God, your architectural plan that you gave us and you want us to follow which the church followed for hundreds and thousands of years we made a better one it's scary but it makes sense because they don't understand the covenant anymore so when all that crumbles we make the church to be whatever we want I told you this is one of my pet peeves and my wife is given to suffer much of that so I try not to say anything so the waters under the heavens be gathered into one river and the river flowed and fed all four rivers notice the waters under the heaven so what elements do we have in nature as far as the Bible is concerned there are really three elements the heavens earth and the sea those are the three elements the heavens earth and the sea okay what do they represent? What's the heavens? The throne of God. The abode of the Almighty. That's heavens. What is earth? What is the land? What is it representing? No. It, it does to a certain degree through the incarnation. You may say that. But really, it represents the people of God. And what is the sea? The Gentiles. All right? Now again, the temple of Jerusalem was built in the following manner. You had the court of the Gentiles. Then raised above it, you had what? The holy and the court of Israel. Raised above it. Why was it raised? Because the land is raised above the sea. And then raised above both of them was what? The holy of holies. Where God dwelt. Does this indicate a structure for our churches? How they should be structured? How they should be architected? God never said make the church an amphitheater. Now I'm not going to pick up on this particular church because it was bought. Okay. Thanks be to God. So don't get me wrong. We bought it and then I'm really happy we have a church. Because we were wandering like nomads for quite some years. But if we were to build a church right now, God never said build it as an amphitheater because because the focus is not on the land the focus is on heaven and you have these three levels that have to be clearly indicated the universe was a temple now let's fast forward a little bit let's go to the Garden of Eden I think you're starting to catch my drift the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it ask yourself this simple question wasn't all the earth good? Wasn't it all the earth good? Yes? Okay. Why does God then take a little garden 
and put the man in the garden. Does this sound like a, an increase or a decrease as far as the man is concerned? And we call this heaven. We call this paradise. Think about it for a minute. Looks like we got things the wrong way. So, let me put you in modern terms. And maybe you'll start to see why God is doing what he's doing. You have this company. And you're the heir of the company. And the company went public. And the company has 100,000 stocks. And your dad comes to you and says, Alright, the company has 100,000 stocks. I'm only going to give you 2,000. Is that an increase or a decrease as far as you're concerned? Decrease. Who says increase? Pardon? You're absolutely right. So let me put it this way. Why does he restrict you only to 2,000? Not to the whole thing. He wants it to be worthy. Yes. 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 He wants to see if you're worthy of the whole thing. So essentially he gives you a little earth toy. He says, my son, take this and play with it. And if you're good at it, I'm going to give you the whole thing. That's the first lesson. He says, I'm going to give you this little piece for you to play with. So that then afterwards I'm going to give you everything. So effectively, how did God build this temple? Did he build him, build it and complete and completed everything in it? Was everything done in the temple when God built it? No. No. Everything was not complete. Why? He wants us to complete it. Why does he want us to complete it? That's it, to share in his glory. But but initially when there was no sin, it was mainly to share in his glory. He's a good father. He's not there to show off. Woohoo! Look how strong I am. Son, see my muscles? Uh-huh. That's not God. God is not like that. God is not doing this for himself. He's doing it for us. But he wants us to share in his glory. So therefore the universe was not complete. Now where do we hear, bear with me, bear with me now. Where do we hear of something that was left incomplete as well? Jesus suffering. I complete in my flesh what is lacking in the suffering of Christ. You see, without this view on the cosmos, those words of St. Paul make no sense. What do you mean complete in the... But what are you talking about? We tend to view this negatively. Oh, you mean Jesus took kind of 90% of all the suffering, and now we have to kind of shoulder the rest. Because he just didn't take it all by himself. No. Just as, just as Adam was given an incomplete universe so that he can share in the glory of God, so it is that Christ allows us to suffer with him so that we can share in his glory. It is a new universe. It's a new creation. Right? Born out of the suffering of Christ. That's the new temple that we are building stone by stone. For each one of us is a stone in the temple of God. The first letter of Peter. This temple is made of living stones. Alright? There is another aspect though to the garden. What happened in the garden? Something very special happened in the garden. It didn't happen in the rest of the world. At least we're not told it happened everywhere else. There's one very special thing that happened in the garden. What was it? Correct. Eve was made. But I wasn't thinking about Eve. In the garden, there was a very special communion between Adam, Eve, and God. He walked in the garden. He walked with them in the garden. Where did they meet him? In the garden. Where did they have a personal relationship with God? They didn't see his face. No, 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 no. Don't, don't extrapolate too much. Right? It was a theophany. But it was certainly not the beatific vision. To see the face of God is to see the beatific vision. They were not given that. Okay. But they were given God's presence. Why do we have a personal relationship? In the garden. Right? Why did he do it this way? Because he wanted to show them and show us that even though this whole place was good, and it was very good, it was not the best. The best was yet to come. And the good can become the enemy of the best. Instead of becoming a symbol of the best, it can become its enemy. 
because we can be attached to earthly goods. So he restricted them in the hope that by communing with him, they would learn about all that is to come. So likewise, it is for us in the church. You want to have a personal relationship with Christ? It's right here in the church. This is the Garden of Eden. Now the reason why it doesn't seem to be so for many Catholics is because in order for the Garden of Eden to be the Garden of Eden, just as it was for Adam and Eve, so it is for us, we have to be inwardly ready. Let me explain further, because this is so essential to the whole notion of the temple. And it answers one of the constant criticism I hear about the church. So many people complain about all the bad stuff that go in the church. I said right now that the universe was a temple, right? We talked about the temple of Jerusalem. We talked about the church. We talked about the garden. There's one more element that we have to talk about to complete the picture and then be able to proceed through. That is our soul. The reason why I personally am so insistent when it comes to architecture to follow the direction of scripture, it is because in the architecture of the church, you see as though in the x-ray, the architecture of your soul. People wonder about the mystical life, meaning the life of prayer, the life that where, where we sit in silence and meet God. And they wonder, how do I do that? Well, one reason why they're wandering is because they are wandering in the desert. Because the architecture no longer lends itself to the structure of the soul. How is the soul structured? Well, the soul is connected to the rest of the world through the senses. The senses are what feed the soul. Okay? So that is essentially the court of the Gentiles where the soul is mingling with the world. Then there is the court of Israel. What is that? That is the um, verbal prayer. That's when the soul now turns eastward. By the way, why are we oriented to, towards the east? And why is it because this... Well, why, why is the fact that the sun shines in the east important to us? Source of life. But what does that mean? Yes, precisely. It represents Christ, right? That's where we enter to the east. It is the rising of the sun representing the, what? The incarnation and the resurrection. Both. And the ascension. All represented in the rising of the sun. That's why you're oriented to the light. So the soul enters into the court of Israel or the court of which is reserved to those who are part of the people of God through the normal prayer, the verbal prayer, prayer of petition, prayer of praise, prayer of adoration. Alright? Then, the soul enters the holy. That is the part of the soul where God begins to join himself to the soul through contemplative prayer. Now what happens in the holy? We're going to see that. When we enter the holy, what is characteristic of the holy? Is it a place with lots of hustles and bustles and people talking and chattering? And It's a place of what? Silence. So when you start entering into the contemplative prayer, you stop talking. Your prayer changes. You have less, much less to say. And then, what is the holy of holy? Anyone who enters in a contemplative life, anyone who is really praying this prayer and God draws him into the holy will know that inside his or her soul there is this place of darkness, this abyss of darkness which is the dwelling of the Trinity. For the Trinity dwells in the soul. And it is this unapproachable intimacy that the Christian person is drawn into without knowing how. That's what the temple represents. That's what the church in her architecture is supposed to represent. But when the church in her architecture is structured to make us point to others, what's it saying about the soul? Shallow. We stay in the court of the Gentiles. We're looking at each other. 
So the reason why he brings him into the garden and he tells him to kill it and guard it is because the garden represents the church where Adam as a priest has the first and foremost duty to do what? Till and guard. Till and guard. So we collectively are represented by all these trees that grow in the garden. And it is the responsibility of the priest to see to it that every tree is taken care of. He has the care of the souls. That's his foremost responsibility towards his, his parish. Now don't get me wrong, I have nothing against having priests trained in psychology or in communication or in uh, parish management. All those things are important. All those things can be very useful as long as they are directed and targeted towards tilling and guarding the Garden of Eden where the new Adam in the person of, of the priest dwells and where the priest will have intimate relationship with his Lord. And who is the new Eve for every priest? Who is the new Eve? Mary, the Blessed Virgin, the Blessed Virgin. And the priest has to look at Mary and say, this is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. This is how much I love her. This is what lies beneath Eden. There's much more we can say about marital relationship, much more we can say about the prayer life, but from a structure, from point of view of structure, it is a church. It is set aside for God. Now, when sin occurred, where did it occur? Where did it happen? In the garden. Can we please stop being uh, shocked when we see sinful actions happening in the church? Can we please stop that? Alright? You got the pattern right here. Okay? Just expect it. It's not going to stop. Don't be shocked. Don't allow yourself to be scandalized. Don't leave the church because of whatever this person, that person did. Expect it. It's part of the battle. And the battle is ongoing. And will not stop till the end of the world. When the sin occurred, we know that effectively something was broken in the natural order. Now sometimes people think that this is a very complicated thing or mystical thing or mysterious thing, but really it isn't. Nature, by its very nature, was made to glorify God. When man was broken by sin, man became disordered, meaning that he was not living according to the virtues anymore. He had his passions were not ordered anymore. But passions by themselves are not bad. They're neither good nor bad. They're just there. They're a drive that we have that allow us to do a whole bunch of stuff. We have to work with our passions, but we should not work in our passions. We should be passionate about things, but not let our passions drive us. But those passions became disordered, and man then started worshipping himself rather than, the, than God. As a result of this, his view of nature and of relationship was deformed, it was broken. Something intrinsically wrong happened. God said, because of what happened, you will be now, you will enter into a, a relationship of enmity with nature. I had put you there to till and guard you forsook what I asked you to do, and because of that, there is now disorder in, na in nature, and you will be fighting nature all your life. So how does that translate? What does that mean, as far as we're concerned? It means $4 to the gallon. That, that's what it means. Yeah, that's what it means. It means that we are constantly fighting nature. That's an important element of our understanding of how we should treat nature and how we should treat ourselves and how we should treat the church. After, after sin came into the world, Adam and Eve were now pushed outside Eden, really as an act of mercy. Why? Because it became too tempting for them. If they had fallen when they were in a state of grace, imagine how much more 
they would repeat the same action now they were not in the state of grace so out of mercy God put them out right so it is that today many Catholics sometimes need to leave the church to discover Christ and come back okay they, they, they don't understand what the church is all about they don't understand the mass they're not really taking part in the mass and instead of them um, committing sacrilegious communion over and over and over and over it is better for them to leave wander find out what the church is all about and then come back and many actually do that what happened after Adam and Eve were taken out of the garden as far as the temple is concerned we now discover that a new element is introduced which was not present in the garden and that new element is the notion of sacrifice in the, in the garden Adam and Eve did not have anything to did not offer God sacrifices you know they didn't take uh, a heavenly cucumber and chopped it in pieces and offered it to God right they didn't they didn't chop a tree and say here Lord I just you know here's the, this branch sacrifice is introduced as a result of sin right what is the purpose of a sacrifice the purpose of a sacrifice is effectively to um, kind of pay back, retri do retribution for something you took which was not yours. But whatever you took which was not yours was destroyed, you can't give it back, so you give something else instead. Somebody had his car totaled, the car is completely destroyed, well the party who caused that cannot give the car back, the car is destroyed, what do they do? They give money instead. In that sense, the money would be considered as a sacrifice if it was offered within a religious context. Sacrifice is introduced and that sacrifice is offered everywhere. There is no restriction on places where you can offer a sacrifice. You can offer it anywhere. We see the first sacrifice right after they leave. Now Adam knew Eve his wife and she conceived and bore Cain saying I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord and again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit of the ground and Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. This is immediately recounted to us that both of them had brought an offering. And what do we note? Not every offering is accepted. Not every offering is worthy of God. One was, the other wasn't. The point though is that sacrifice becomes an essential part of the way we interact with God. So what do we do? We know that we owe God something, but we can't pay Him back. Because if we were to pay Him back, guess what we would have to do? Die. Well, we love God, but not that much. I mean, I'm saying in a jest, but that's reality. That's the hard reality. We love God, but not that much. Well, that's an interesting point. The point is that once we get, come to love God to that point, that much we can't die. Well, I would, I would contend that that's precisely why we still die today. If, if, if Christ conquered death, why are we still dying? So that we can God love God that much. God, death is, is a merciful act on God's part. Since the, the coming of Christ. It was a curse before. Now that curse is changed into a blessing. Because it allows us to show God that we love Him this much. He actually allows us. He gives us the strength to show Him we love Him this much. Which we could not do on our own. I mean, I mean, you really think about it, you get overwhelmed with how much Christ loves us. You really get completely overwhelmed. You can't understand His love. It's beyond comprehension. You, you really come to terms when you say to, to Christ, okay, I don't understand how you can love me this much, because if I was you, I would not love me this much. You, you can't love yourself the way Christ loves you. It's, it's impossible. So, we know that Abel and all the just ones loved God but they knew that they owed God something 
the, the original disobedience of Adam and Eve trickled through and we are now forsaken in a sense. We are outside Eden. We are outside the church. And there's nothing that we can, we can do on our own to bring us back to that original state of innocence. We don't have what it takes. We don't have what it takes. And so what do we do? We offer God a sacrifice. And what is that sacrifice? It's essentially something that we have, that we hold dear and near to us, and are we willing to let go of? Right? Why does God look at sacrifices this way? Because really, essentially God wants to heal us where it hurts. And where it hurts is where we are attached to stuff. That's what caused us to fall in the first place. This is what continuously causes us to fall today. We're attached to stuff. So God says, if you love me, offer me the stuff. Now, does this mean that by me offering the stuff, I am saved? No, never. But by me offering the stuff, I am actually being trained in the school of Christ. I'm just being trained in loving like Christ loves. Because I'm being prepared for heaven. I'm speaking the words, I'm not speaking, I'm babbling the words of heaven. All our acts of mercy are babble talk. They're child talk compared to what we'll say in heaven. Because we can't love here the way we love, we love in heaven. That's what the sacrifice does. And so Abel and all the just ones, including Abraham and Jacob and Isaac, were content to raise a, an altar anywhere and offer sacrifice anywhere. Why could they do that? Why were they able to offer a sacrifice anywhere? Right, but the universe represents a temple, and it is a place where we can worship God. But remember, as far as we know, neither Adam, I mean, neither Abraham, nor Jacob, nor, nor Isaac, had spacecrafts to go to Mars or some other place and offer sacrifice over there. They offered it only here. Why was it that they could actually walk the earth and offer sacrifice anywhere? Because... The land is an altar of sacrifice. God created this earth as an altar of sacrifice. And who is the victim? Us. That's why scripture speaks of the four corners of the earth. Not because they thought earth was flat. I don't think any of the ancients ever thought that the earth was flat. But because they saw the earth as the altar in the temple where sacrifice is offered. That's why they could walk the earth and offer sacrifices. Then something else happened. Up to Sinai, every firstborn, every prince, every chief of tribe could offer sacrifice. I contend, that's my own personal opinion, all right? that's my own personal opinion, that this explains why in modern America, women typically cook inside the house, but it's the men who barbecues outside. I contend that there is something deeply and profoundly religious that is ingrained in us that make us gather around a barbecue. Because you need to remember that when they sacrificed an animal, they didn't throw it away. The animal was cooked and eaten. It was a barbecue. Okay? And that same feeling, that same sense of people gathering around a barbecue must have existed around the sacrifice. But they added to it a religious nature. They understood what they were doing as an offering to God. And yet God is so good that He allows us to partake of that offering. It was a, a uh, catechism about the goodness of God done in food. We've disasso disassociated that completely. Because most of us go to the marketplace and buy meat that has been neatly arranged for us, we avoid all the gore, we don't see the animal die in front of us, and therefore we've completely dis disassociated that from the notion of a sacrifice. Yet an animal must have been sacrificed for me to enjoy this, but I don't think about giving God the glory. Now when I offer the sacrifice, what happened? Why would they offer a Why would they offer a sacrifice? Why would they actually put the animal on fire? Because in all religion of the past, all religion that offers sacrifice always thought that when the, the, uh, the, the animal is sacrificed on fire, the animal goes up in smoke. Where is it going up to? Heaven. 
Indicating what? That the deity has consumed the animal. The deity actually ate it. Alright? And that there is therefore a transformation of the animal from its normal nature into smoke. Indicating that there's this mysterious realm of the deity which is not accessible to us. God accommodated himself to this thinking when, for instance, he sealed the covenant with Abraham. What did he do? There were these animals that were sacrificed, that were placed on the altar, and God, by means of fire, went through them. Which was the usual means through which, going across, when you, put the, the, when you, when you wanted to seal a covenant with somebody, you'd have a sacrifice, and you walk you walk between the pieces, indicating that you sealed the covenant. God did the same. But God in His goodness allowed us to partake in this covenant. Why do you think He did that? Because really God is ecologically mindful and He doesn't like waste. That's the first example of recycling in history. Is that why? Is that what God had in mind? What do you think He had in mind? What was He teaching us about? The heavenly banquet. The heavenly banquet. Or we will sit at the table of the Lord. That's what he had in mind. So everything that was done through all these sacri- all this sacri- sacrificial lit- liturgy that was growing was done with one thing in mind. To help the Israelites recognize the Messiah when he comes and then to help us understand and prepare ourselves for heaven. That's his purpose. So they were able to offer sacrifice and then when Moses went up the mountain to get the, the, the Ten Commandments you know and I know that they worshipped Apis, the god of fertility from Egypt. The result of which was that the sacrifice, the ability to sacrifice was taken away from them and given to the Levites. Only the Levites would be able to sacrifice. Right? Because the Levites were the only ones who did not worship Apis. They stood by Moses. And because of that, they gained to themselves the glory of the priesthood. And signifying by that the importance of those who are called to the priesthood. Signifying by that the, the very special grace and love that God has for his priests. And that's why I will think twice before critiquing a priest. That's me. Uh, pardon? Rabbis are different than priests. A rabbi can be uh, someone who is teaching in a synagogue. He we call the rabbi. He doesn't have to be a priest at the temple. Right? Obviously, folks from the family of Levi may have some Levitical roots. But that's beside the point. Now, and that's the tri- tribe from which Moses and Aaron come from. They're Le- Levites. And that's what we call the Levitical priesthood. Alright? So they were now consecrated priests to God. And something else happened, and, and that is during Moses being on the mountain, he was given a description of the tabernacle. And how that place would become the dwelling place of God. So notice that the dwelling place of God has now been restricted. Severely so. Okay? It has been restricted in a very severe fashion. Why is that? We abused the earth, yes. Because of sin. What is the one thing that God cannot tolerate? Sin. Right? Sin. And furthermore, what is the one thing that sin cannot tolerate? God. Alright? That kind of, uh, yeah, it's like water and sulfur, right? Just don't put them together. So, God now is saying that I can't dwell among these people after what they did to worshipping Apis. I'm going to dwell outside of the camp. Outside of the camp. Signifying by that two things. Number one, that the old economy, the old covenant, cannot bring God inside people. It cannot bring God in our midst. cannot do that. And number two, that heaven is altogether different outside of this world. This is what Christ told Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. Right? 
And that is why, that's why, that's specifically why my kingdom is the only one that will rule this world. My kingdom has its roots outside of this world. Therefore, nothing in this world can ever destroy my kingdom. Nothing in this world has power over my kingdom because my kingdom is not of this world. Okay? Those are the two realities which were signified by having that tabernacle outside of the camp. And then a ceremonial, a whole ceremonial offering was put together by God to teach them how to worship Him. How to worship Him. We're going to spend some time looking at the liturgy of the temple at the Day of Atonement, which is the, the holiest feast among the Jews. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And we're going to spend some time understanding this liturgy. Okay? Then, moving from the desert, they reach the, 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 what is called the Promised Land. Which is a very small piece of earth. Again, God didn't give them a huge chunk of earth. He just gave them a small one. Repeating his lesson, just as the tabernacle was a small one, where God in his presence was restricted, so was the Holy Land, restricted, small. Indicating again the same thing, teaching them the same thing. Teaching them to recognize the Messiah, because the, when the Messiah will come, it will not, he will not come. The signs of force and power, he will come as a small baby. Everything was made, everything was built to constantly teach them about God and His revelation. In Israel, Solomon built God a house. Okay. Remember that among, uh, Semitic, in the Semitic culture, a house has multiple meanings. The first meaning of a house is a house, the building. But a second meaning is a, a dynasty. Okay. A dynasty. So... Um, these two meanings are combined together when we think of the temple. What is now the temple? Beyond the place where God lives. When we say it's the house of God. What is this, in another way of saying the house of God? The family of God. The dynasty of God. That's what the temple becomes. Not just a place where anyone can go worship God. It is also... His family. That's why the family, in her divine structure, is a temple. It is a, we call it today, in the catechism, the domestic church. Because of this. And then in this temple, as I said earlier, the temple is structured in very, very specific ways. We have the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. And then we have the court of Israel, in which we have the court of the women, the court of the men, the court of the priests, and all of these courts are outside of the building. They're outside, the, we're not inside yet. We haven't reached the holy. We're still outside. Okay? So therefore, even the land of the church is important. Even being outside the church is important. Okay? And then when you enter the holy, what are you supposed to do when you enter the holy? What do you do in the holy? You offer sacrifice to God and you're a priest by the way no, no lay person is allowed to enter the holy only a priest and then what do you do inside you do a sacred duty what is the opposite of sacred profane what does profane mean yes of the world but really profanum Latin means outside the walls outside the walls outside the temple let me give you an example. You take the cup that the priests used to celebrate the liturgy with. You take the cup, you go outside, and you drink beer with it. You have profaned it. Notice, beer is not in itself intrinsically bad. Alright? It's not a sin to drink a glass of beer. A, you know, a bottle of beer. So beer is not a bad thing. How come then have you profaned the cup by pouring inside of it something that is not bad? Well, the reason why you profaned it was because you poured into it something which is not for sacred use. You understand? Beer is not for sacred use. You're with me? Does this make sense? 
All right, so now let me answer this question. Is this place in which we are right now holy? Is it less or more holy than the Temple of Jerusalem? More. Obviously, more. Why is it more holy? Because the real and substantial presence of God. He is present behind me just as He is present in heaven right now with all the nine choirs of angel. No difference. Only to my senses. But objectively, substantially, in all the fullness of reality, there is no difference between the tabernacle and heaven. None. Is it more or less holy than the temple? Okay. Very good. See, I just... Uh, I set you up. Now, let me ask you one more question. If you see a friend and you say, Hi, how are you? And this friend says, I'm fine. How are you? And you say, I'm fine. Is that a bad or good conversation? It's a good conversation, right? I mean, you're not insulting each other. You're not tearing your hair apart. You're just saying hi. Right? Okay. Is it sacred? So when you have this conversation here, what have you done? Profane the church. You with me? It's one of my pet peeves. A deeply seated pet peeve that makes me suffer. When I see people treating this place like it's a salon. Having nice side conversation. Profaning the place because what they're doing is bringing in something which has nothing to do with the sacred duty of Christians into this holy place. It is, by the way, venial sin, in case you didn't know. And you can understand why. See, this is what we've lost as Catholics. We've lost the power of the liturgy. We've lost the power of this place. We don't understand it anymore. We think, this is a social place, we just come in. Oh, Mass started, the show has begun. Okay. It was a good show. Father had a good, good sermon today. I liked what he said. Better than last week. Oh, it's done. We turn around. Hi, how are you? How are you doing? You mean, we, do you know that if we were in a temple, we would be stoned to death for doing this? One last thing, before I let you go. Just to, make, to show you how we don't really have a good grasp on what Mass is doing. You know, there's this movie coming up. And quite a few Catholics sometimes feel maybe powerless before something like this. Allow me to point out to you Psalm 1. Hopefully this will put it in context. And give you an understanding of how we ought to pray at Mass. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds asunder and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord has them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The prayer that we ought to pray, the prayer that I'm praying at Mass, is this, that this company who's producing this movie and all the people involved in it may not make a successful movie until they glorify the Lord. Why can I make such a prayer? Why can I pray this way? Well, because of everything the Lord taught us. Ezekiel had to speak a word of, of, of uh, 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 an oracle against Tyre and against some of the other nations, not because they fought against Israel, no, because they laughed at Israel. Now here is a company who has been addressed twice by Opus Dei, who gently asked them to put a disclaimer saying this is fiction, and they refused. Here's a company who is producing a lie against the glory of God. Will God's glory be made manifest? Will God glorify His name? He will. Now what is the real prayer of mercy towards these people? That they keep on doing what they're doing and be successful? Would that be merciful? No. That is the power that Catholics have in the Mass. And guess what? They don't make use of it. You're not condemning them. You are praying to God. 
I can't condemn them. No, to have mercy on them. That's the real mercy. Again, we get things confused. We think mercy is that we can be successful when it can actually lead us to hell. Mercy is having God make us fail so we can glorify His name. That's the real mercy. That's the real power we have. Now, I have no doubt. I have zero doubt that if they keep on going that path and they produce that movie, I would recommend that if you have stocks in this company, you take them out. Because of all the prophecies I've been reading to you. Because of the power of the covenant. That's how the covenant works. The power will be taken away from them. Maybe not right away, but it will. Somebody who absolutely continues to provoke God and make, and, and, and make fun of His holy name will have to face, to face up with the me mechanism of the covenant. That's why the covenant is so important. But we Catholics don't dare to pray this way. Because it's so politically incorrect. How could we pray something like this? You know, God the Father is Santa, Christ is a hippie, and the Holy Spirit is a pigeon. How could God being upset or, or wrathful when someone is deriding what his son did on the cross? That's our prayer. That's what the liturgy is for. That's what the book of Revelation is all about. It's not about how the end of the world is, is going to come. Yeah, it's about that, but tangentially only, in part. It's about the power of the liturgy and how God, how the Christ is the Lord of history, the Lord of lords. It's about time we discover the church and the mass and how we ought to conduct ourselves. It used to be that people were converted when seeing Catholics pray and behave in the church. No more. And it isn't something we can blame the world for. It is our doing. We get into this church as if we're into a talk show. Remember, this is holy. Be mindful of what you're doing. And may God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.